everyone. I'm Selma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience research podcast. So today is September 16th. Is that right? Oh, could you hear my computer dinging? Oops, I'll have to turn all that stuff off. I'm on a new computer. Okay. Um, today is September 16th, 2021, and we're talking with Max Fletcher, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center. Hi, Max. Hi. So um, Fletcher Lab studies sensory representations in the olfactory and more recently uh, in the taste systems of mice and how they are modulated during learning and decision making. He uses a, a range of techniques, including in vivo electrophysiology, awaken and, and anesthetized in vivo imaging, um, in vivo two photon and wide field calcium imaging, as well as lots of different behavioral paradigms. Um, so today in the Zoom, we've got uh, our peripheral taste specialist. Not that you're peripheral, but you're a specialist of peripheral taste. Um, Lindsay McPherson, you're very central. Um, hi, Lindsay. Hi, Selma, thanks. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi, hi Charlie. And Todd Troyer, hi. Hello. So yeah, I'm, we're gonna, I'd like to focus on the taste part of this today, but do feel free to bring in whatever, uh, you, whatever comes up about olfaction as well, because um, it's very relevant too. So Max, the three kind of ancient expectations that, um, well, four actually, that we have about primary sensory cortices are that they contain some sort of fundamental representation of a stimulus quality or of all qualities. Um, that they're distributed in um, some sort of topographically meaningful way, um, that they serve some sort of perceptual discrimination or some sort of perceptual uh, activity or process, and that when you lesion the area, that's four, when you lesion the area, um, that that perceptual ability goes away. So we can dig in in a lot of different places there, and I hope we will, but I'd like to kind of start with a big thing underlying all of that, which is, is should we even think about gustatory cortex in terms of perceptual function, right? Because that's sort of, um, that's sort of like the key question, right? And I hope, do you want to start there? I mean, yeah, well, I okay. well, the one thing I, I want to kind of add is, um, because in terms of, of gustatory cortex, it's not really like any other cortex, right? That in terms of the readout is a behavior, right? You can move through the world looking at things passively without necessarily motivating or interacting with them. You can, but when something's on your tongue, you either have to chew or spit it out, right? There's a really clear decision right. that you have to make. Um, so anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I think that's a great question and sort of a, a question that I've been, I mean, when you go to grad school, that's sort of where you're taught, right? Like, oh, this is this is primary cortex, and it it is the area that does the final thing, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I think that that you know, I, I started as an olfactory for most of the time, um, an olfactory person, and it's maybe more true in olfactory cortex and piriform cortex. I mean, it's a it's one step, right? I mean, primary olfactory cortex we usually consider as piriform cortex, and it's like sensory neuron bulb piriform cortex. So it's really early on, kind of in the it's not even neocortex, right? It's but it's really early on, so probably in those cases, it is really, you know, sort of that kind of more maybe fits that definition um, you know, of that kind of cortex, even though it's kind of weird, I think, but, um, but definitely, and so that's kind of the preconceived notion I had going into to doing the stuff with, um, with John Botter, who's the, the other guy in our department, who's the, the real taste person. And, um, and so, um, 
you know, this, this sort of, you know, like as things have progressed in the past few years, just, just jumping in sort of on the, what I feel sort of the back end of it, um, it really seems like maybe that's, you know, not true, but you don't need gustatory court. Maybe there's no reason, I guess, is the best way that it, that it, that it, it has to be making these very simple decisions on what you're tasting. And um, it's really weird. Like I, I always just jump back to, to olfaction, but if you think about affection, I mean, the number of odorants that you can, that we can detect is maybe in the millions, right? I mean, I don't even know the upper limit now. It changes all the time, but it's certainly a lot, a lot, right? And, and, but the number of tastes is not very many, right? It's a handful. So if, you know, you know, I always kind of think about that. Maybe you don't need the system to do the things that the visual system does or the auditory system does or even the olfactory system does and sort of break things apart and then put them back together into their final, you know, final perception or whatever you want to call it that you can act upon. Um, it's already there, you know, and there's all these crazy things where, people could show that, you know, rats still make the, the face uh, when you, they taste bitter, even if they don't have a cortex at all. So um, there's some low level ability to sort of, you know, this is good and bad sort of built in from the beginning. So yeah, um, um, it, it's been a challenge as we go forward that maybe we, maybe other people think that already, but for me, I, I sort of didn't, I think, oh, Gus, you know, primary cortex should be the thing. Um, and it should do just, you know, it should primarily be taste identity or something. Um, and, and yeah, it's becoming more and more apparent, not just from us, but a lot of people that, you know, that's not maybe really what it's doing. Um, and I don't know that we really can say, <laughs> at least from my perspective, it's really hard to know exactly, you know, put a, put a thing on it that says, this is exactly what it does. Um, but that's kind of what makes it fun, so. So there's two questions come to mind, which are, I mean, one you've worked on yourself, which is defining kind of the anatomical borders of what gustatory cortex is. Uh, also the topography you've worked a lot on. And then the, the third question is the one about the lesions. So when we lesion and, and I mean, the gustatory cortex, what happens? So, it's, it's, so I think, oh gosh, if I can remember. So I, I think maybe not a lot, right? Um, yeah, it's, um, Lindsay um, Shear did some of this stuff, yes, I think. Yes, and, and so uh, a lot of that has been more in tune with CTA and learning. So it, you know, puts another spin on exactly. it. That's certainly, point, yeah. certainly like, you know, what, where we're considering cortex is, eh, you can kind of, and you know, the, the lesion studies are here and there because they're so hard to really make perfect. I mean, I think we're probably at a point now where we can do, you know, more fancy versions of lesions with dreads or opto or whatever, but, but yeah, I think maybe not a whole lot, right? I mean, the animals still, still seem to be able to learn can tell you uh, this is good or this is bad, um, these kinds of things. So, so is there? So there. It seems like there. There has been some question, right, L Lindsay? Uh, a lot of the work from Zucker's group is sort of does talk about a topography. How much of that is? What, what can you talk around some of that? And and it seems to me that some of that is at least based on the fact that th the definition of gustatory cortex may be. I mean, I, I don't know. Is it that there? Is there a specific definition because it's kind of embedded in this insular cortex, right? No, right. And so, like, I think that's why we, well, coming from it from sort of an outside, that's why we really wanted to look at like the thalamic projections and sort of say, where is it? Because you know, it gets really crazy. Insular cortex is this big, long piece of cortex, and and you know, kind of as you go anterior to posterior, maybe there, you know, some there's this other crazy idea that that I really like that that. Um, that you know, maybe it's just a big area that represents internal state, right? And so anything that's sort of going on inside you can be represented in insular cortex, maybe in some kind of overlapping gradient, but you know, like um, more posterior parts of insular cortex start to respond to foot shocks or you know, sickness or 
lots of other bad things. And and then, yeah, that sort of goes into sort of the Zucker um, point that, that, you know, somewhere in there, as you sort of go from way posterior, not gustatory cortex to feed into gustatory cortex, maybe you, you hit this, you know, you sort of overlap with this bad. And, you know, maybe as you go a little bit more anterior, you get into the good. And so I think we were sort of playing with the idea of, well, okay, if there's sort of just this big area, and then this is where the taste information comes in, is it its own unique thing, right? Or is it just part of another set of information that insular cortex receives about the in, you know internal state that you're in, right? And so maybe it's better to think about it in that way. I, I don't think, uh, you know, up until very recently, that's not been the way that people think about it. And, um, and maybe that, that allows you to sort of ask questions that you wouldn't normally ask. And, um, um, you know, made a lot of things. I mean, I think from what we talked about today, there's this kind of idea that, you know, maybe, maybe it is about consumption or, you know, what the animal's actually doing. Um, it's, it's sort of a bigger picture than just this tastes sweet or not. So do we know anything about how, uh, how complex taste reception is? <laughs> I mean, how complicated and fine does it get? I mean, people have, People looked that, I mean, it's hard because a lot of the, you know, the behavioral things are wrapped up with olfaction, right? So, um, but do we know how, how much complex discrimination there is just in the taste system? You mean like from, a, from like a like single cell kind of thing or a population like? Or anything, I mean, or even, you know, even behaviorally, I mean, you, you kind of stated, well, it's pretty simple. Um, but how much of people looked and pushed it? Um, I think quite a bit, right? I mean, I mean, you can do. I mean, certainly that this, you know, the, the sort of experiments you expect to be done have been done, where I, I can have an animal, you know, I can give the animal the different tastes and see how the cells respond, and then ask, you know, from this population, uh, can I in decode from that the different, you know, the different tastes. Um, just like you probably would in another sensory system. And I think that's, that's, that's all been done, right? But I, I think on some level, yeah, it's harder because there's just these basic, I mean, and you know, it, it, it becomes harder, especially when I think about it from odors. I mean, I could just, I run out of room in the number of odors. I, I, can, I can't give an animal a thousand odors. And that's, you know, that's probably not very many in, in terms of what we encounter on a daily basis, right? But we all just encounter the same few tastes right and so so um, just because we the, the number of receptors is so small or i mean the, yeah, because yeah. the number of things we taste is so small yes because the number of things we taste is is you know like more or less a few you know things right um you know like how many uh, this is a big thing i think there's like Lindsay probably knows a lot more than this but like taste receptors how many taste receptors are there like different genes that encode taste receptors 30 yeah, ish, like there's ish. there's thirty there's thirty bitters or thirty some bitters, and then the rest yeah. is like five. Right? Yeah, and there's like right? two pairs of GPCRs for the first sweet, two pairs of GPCRs for for umami. One of them is shared, <laughs> and and then you've got you know the the sour autopetrin and then an ENAC channel you know in mice uh, for salt. So you know, the receptor repertoire is minimal, minimal. There's still a lot of there's still a lot of combinations. I mean. I was just trying to think about the combinations of the things that you were saying. You were acting like there, there wasn't a lot, but all these, I'm, but, you know, you right, meet all but, these people who think that, who claim that they can tell the difference between all these different kinds of beer on the basis of the particular kind of bitter that they are. 
Is but that's that all that an illusion? Well, I think you you may be able to. So so, but bitter is an interesting one, right? Because there's all these different receptors for bitter, right? Do we know like like yeah? But in smell, right? Like like, oh, it gets. There's not a lot of probably like the right word, I guess, is synergy or interaction, like mixtures, right? Like if you drink something that's salty and sweet, it just tastes salty and sweet. Or if you eat something that's salty and sweet, if, if I give you two different odors and you smell them and you're like, this smells like odor A and this smells like odor B, and then I mixture, mix them in sort of an equal thing, they may not smell like, they could smell like A, they could smell like B, they could smell like A plus B, or they could smell like something completely different, right? And so um, I think yeah, there, there's something to that, that the, the number of possible stimuli combinations is much lower, um, right? And then it's kind of already segregated or very early on um, into the system. So that's so what, what, what kind of leading, to, sorry, go ahead, Charlie. So what, what, I was just wondering what the brain has to do. Like if, if it's just that everything that you can taste is already encoded at the receptor level and combinations aren't important, then the brain has no job. I mean, the brain could just basically say, when I, when something tastes bad, I stick out my tongue, right? Right, but I mean, I guess there, there are, there are. I mean, I guess sometimes I, I know I, I'm guilty of this. Is like we get caught up in in asking these questions without really thinking about what they mean to the animal and an animal's normal behavior, right? I mean, we we need to taste sweet because we need to know what's sugar for us to eat, and we need salt, right? A lot of these have to do with appetite, right? And so. So that's certainly circuits that are central, right? Like, like when I'm when I'm salt deprived, I probably have a lower sensitivity to salt. That's the right way. I'm less sensitive to salt, and I'll drink more of it, right? Um, so, so there are, there are these circuits that are built in, but they're just not identity, right? Like like they're not they're not made for knowing this is salt. Um, whereas I don't know that that's true, say in the olfactory system, right? Uh, it's just a very different. Uh, I think sometimes it's hard to compare systems without thinking about what their primary sort of original job was um, um, for the animal. Yeah, so I, was, I mean, I was thinking about in auditory cortex, you have a little bit of, of, a, of a flavor of this, right? So you can do tone discrimination without, you know, with bilateral, just, you know, get rid of your auditory cortex and you, animals can still do tone discrimination. Uh, but they can't do like complex amplitude modulated tones. And then if you go out, Beyond primary cortex, there's a lot of argument about what some of these secondary auditory cortex areas are doing, right? Are they to do auditory objects? Or are they doing more like integrating audition with other stuff, right? Uh, and so maybe in gustatory cortex, that's because it's simple enough, it's already leaking into primary or I don't know how to think about that in terms of the maybe the the discrim simple discrimination is already done and so it's mostly the integration part with other behaviors or other kinds of things and there is a huge i mean there's a there's a there's direct projections from olfactory cortex to insular cortex so you know like because when we eat it's flavor right like Lindsay mentioned like discriminating beers is often done by what we call taste but it's really not taste it's really flavor which is olfaction so maybe it's really hard to even talk about just one, I mean, we never probably really experienced too many tastes without a olfactory component when we eat or when they, so maybe it's sort of too simplistic to even consider it, you know, a single standalone sort of sensory system. And, and you need, you need on some level to maybe, and, and it is, and to be fair that there is, you know, gustatory cortex will respond to odors, piriform cortex will respond to taste. So, you know, there could be a lot of that going on there. That's more about, you know, like the overall, 
whatever you want to call it, flavor of fooding that, that needs to be, um, that these, that's where that's happening, right? Because I think that's probably the first, gustatory cortex is probably the first area where odor information is integrated with taste information. I think that's probably true. So um, you know, there's another big component, but that, that may be very special to, you know, just, just feeding in those kinds of circumstances. Lindsay, did you want to jump oh, in? So, yeah, I, I was thinking about the you know taste mixtures. I brought this up uh, maybe earlier, but the it, I mean at, at least at the level of the peripheral gustatory system, if you if you give you know bitter and sweet together, you get ganglion neurons that will essentially be the bitter plus the sweet population you know additive. But like, is that changed in the cortex? Like how? I mean, there's there's the top down kind of back and forth regulation of, of you know, if you have something that's bitter um, and and sweet together, you, you know, kind of bitter tends to win because it is so aversive. Um, so there's kind of like a, a top down, you know, inhibit the lick, the eating of this because it contains something bad, even though it contains something good, right? So it kind of like this push pull, um, but of uh, response. Um, but in the periphery, which, you know, I, 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 I focus mostly on the periphery, it's, it's pretty additive. So there's no, there's no, like, <coughs> there, there's no real inhibition at that point, right? So that it's happening further up. But that I was thinking for, for, for the, you know, representation within the, the gustatory cortex, if you have a mixture, would it be seen as, as something novel or as, or as just a, as a, as a combination? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Right. Um, um, and then we really weren't thinking in that way when we did them. Um, I was just talking to John about it. Like after, after the talk, it's like, oh, we really need, need to try that. That's a neat idea. But yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I guess, I guess sort of the way I, maybe this is wrong. And the way I've kind of always thought about it is that, that, you know, like at least thinking about a formal faction and maybe it carries over is that you have some straightforward circuit that processes sensory information sort of just without any other influence, right? Even probably in the olfactory system, this is this smell, this is this smell, and this is this smell. Somewhere along the way, like sort of like Lindsay was saying, there's all these other systems that can impinge upon that to sort of modulate that response depending on the state of the animal, right? Um, um, you know, and so, you know, maybe you need cord, maybe that's where cortex, the problem is I come from bulb, bulb is a, bulb is a strange place, right? Like for all the sensory inputs coming into bulb, there's just as much centrifugal inputs from the rest of the brain coming into bulb. So, um, bulb is this really great, crazy place that kind of can do that, right? Like, like hunger, like whatever, whatever state you're in can really heavily modulate the sensory responses, especially like sensitivity, um, to odor input. Right. And so. Um, maybe that's sort of the job that these other cortex protocol areas are doing in the other systems. I mean, olfactions are probably probably not ever good to compare to maybe olfactions just weird in general in that way. So so maybe it's hard to do, but but maybe that's the point. I mean, you know that like since your preferences to food taste, your preferences to sweet, salty, whatever change depending on the state you're in, hunger, um, these kinds of things, right? Um, or um, you know, neophobia is another one where an animal that hasn't experienced the taste before will, will be hesitant to drink it, right? Because they, they don't really know if it's good or bad or not, right? And maybe those kinds of things are being modulated. You have, you have some signal that's saying, this is what it tastes like, but maybe how I respond to what it tastes like, it's different depending on the state that I'm in. I think that's sort of the, the, the thing that we're sort of, or at least I'm sort of interested in is how basic sensory processing can be modulated by the state that the animal is in. And whether that's previous experience with these tastes or fear or novelty or these kinds of things. 
What are the clues in the connectivity? Because basolateral amygdala is kind of interposed in this. And so the hedonic value, which again, I, I mean, a lot of these questions are getting at like, you know, the coding scheme, right? So there's, I guess, a, a lot of ideas about just temporal coding at a population level and that somehow this signal is evolving more from, a, you know, a discrimination to uh, making a choice based on this hedonic process, right? So how do we know what direction the, the, the signals are going? I mean, that's a stupid question, but like, do we have a sense of, is the hedonic input coming in or is there sort of some cortical, is this an intrinsic cortical thing that then is sort of like... So, well, I know from like conditioned taste aversion, right? So there's, there's certainly maybe some of it is innate, right? There's definitely reciprocal connections to the amygdala, both bad and good parts of the amygdala, right? Into cortex. But I know there's more of a recent paper that looked and um, they looked at responses in neurons in gustatory cortex neurons before and after CTA. And they found that the majority of the cells that changed this is anesthetized animals, but um, the majority of the cells that changed their response following the condition diversion were cells that I believe project to the basolateral amygdala, right? And so I think this is this is this is sort of getting to your question that yeah maybe there are these built-in circuits, right? And so some some badness information is coming in from the amygdala um, into gustatory cortex when you learn the aversion. Although I think it's more complex than that too because we're. Uh, at what level in the periphery, I mean, there must be some, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that it's getting to cortex and then sort of having this exchange because it's such a fun. Right. And maybe that's the learning. I mean, the, the, the aversion, like sickness probably comes in, in the brainstem. Right. And, mm -hmm. and probably even PBN. I think there's evidence that PBN neurons um, uh, also, you know, encode badness as well. So it just gets really complex and maybe, you know, Clearly the amygdala, if you lesion the amygdala, I think you block CTA. That's probably a, a safe bet, right? And so just like, in, um, so yeah, maybe, I don't know. I, it, it, it gets really difficult really fast. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, it, it's clear that there's innate, and that, I think that's also hard because in the olfactory system, there's not, there is some, but there are much less innately bad odors. I mean, there, there are like predator odors and things, but the vast majority of the odors that we probably encounter aren't, that bad, right? Um, there are some, but not certainly like we have a whole taste system for like bad things, like a couple of bad things, like bitters and sours, right? So um, it, it's just hard because there's there's a heavy innate, like you're saying, there's a there's a heavy hedonic value. S sweet is good, right? And bitter is bad it, normally, right? Um, and that's independent of any learning, right? Um, so I think that that makes it complex sometimes because um, that's what I guess I was trying to get at today is that that that. If you're asking questions about how experience changes things and you've got this extra layer of already things are already good or bad coming in. Uh, it seems like in the olfactory system. Though. Yeah, and so like- to follow, to follow the bad taste, to find the part of the brain that means bad. I know, and follow the good taste, the part of the brain that means good. Shouldn't that be, I mean, it's really hardwired like that. Like bad is bad and good is good. And, and so bitter is always gonna mean bad then Let's just follow the bitter accents to the part of the brain that detects bad. Is there such a place? I mean, maybe. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's also, but that's the problem is some of the bad is happening in the brain. Like, the, you know, like the, the other problem is when we think about like our, we have this 
reflex to, to, you know, if you pick up something and you don't know what it is and it's gross, you're like, you're spitting it out or you're making that face. And that, that's very, I think that's very, you don't need a cortex to do that. Right. Um, um, babies do this, animals do, we all make that face. Right. And so, so there's kind of different levels of bad, right. Maybe that's, that's just the innate bad, but what about the learned bad? Right. Maybe that, that is, I think as most people probably say the bad places in the amygdala, right. Um, in terms of learned badness. So I mean, can, you, can you do CTA without the, the gustatory cortex or partly? Yes. So yes. How, how much, like, does it affect um, the plot or just uh, a little bit? Um, I'm, so I'm trying to think it's been done a number of times and with sort of mixed results. Um, it, if I remember right, um, in the gustatory region, yes. Right. But as you get further back into more posterior areas of cortex, maybe no. Um, but this is again, sort of fitting into this idea that maybe that's the region that encodes the sickness. Right. So, it, you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't perceive the badness, you can't learn that it's bad. Um, I think I I, I want to say, and that's one one problem, right? Because all of this stuff, all this sensory information, you know, taste, uh, and you know, malaise are all inputted into the same kind of region in the brain stuff. So it's all funneling into this like NTS region that's picking up all sorts of stuff, right? So like that, I that I always find that amazing, like how much stuff goes through that small region of the brain and then goes to all these other, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's tiny, thing. right? If you leave it's it small. in, you don't learn a CTA, right? You definitely don't. Um, but but then I think that sort of fits into this idea that you know maybe maybe thinking about gustatory cortex as its independent thing in insular cortex is just not really the way to do it. Maybe in, insular cortex is this area that represents all kinds of different body states and internal states, and one of those internal states is things in your mouth or things in your gut or these kinds of things. So and maybe that makes more sense in the long run, and that that leads you to you know, better experiments and or more interesting experiments than uh, sort of just, you know, asking uh, how similar two tastes are in, in cortex. This always blows my mind, the gut stuff impinging back on a learning mechanism, because the envelope of time that you have to integrate across becomes huge. I mean, I don't know how long it takes for a signal to get from the gut to the brain after eating something and having it make you, but for me, it might be hours. I don't know. Yeah. And so that's, that's, what's crazy about CTA. So like, you know, we do odor fear where we pair an odor with shock. And if you pair that, if you give a sec, two seconds of odor, and then you wait a minute to give the shock, the animal is not going to learn that association, right? It's too far, but in CTA, it can be like the next day, right? I mean, it's like, that may be extreme, but it, it's certainly, you can wait, you know, you can have an animal drink a bunch of saccharin or sucre and then wait several hours and then inject and make him sick and they still learn it. Right. So it's, it's different. And then that's the other thing is in most of the studies, like what we used, we use sodium chloride, but a lot of them use saccharin because saccharin is sweet, but doesn't have post-ingestive effects. So it's kind of hard, right? Like, because that also can confound things. Right. So it's always surprising to me that with these, this, this little bit of CTA that I looked at for the the gustatory stuff that they that the entire mechanism doesn't become aversive like they still lick they still approach even the i mean they all still try like the the unless they're given unless i'm not understanding something about the behavioral um you know the way things are blocked but um like you showed some stuff today that that looked like that the behavior has absolutely no effect even in the 
I mean, even after CT, I mean, across the board, it's similar to the control rather than the post-aversion training. Yeah. And I think, I think part of the issue is that, you know, how you, again, it's tricky because your behavior gets tricky because you have to make the animal do what you want, but you're also, that's another manipulation. So like in the CTA experiments to get the animals to drink, they have to be thirsty. So they're water deprived. Right. And so when you put them in the next day, they have to drink I mean, they haven't had water in a while. Right. And so, so you're playing this game. I mean, I, I think I always think of if, if we were stuck out in the desert for a day or two and we didn't have water, if you came up on a big muddy puddle on the ground, you would just drink it, right? You're like, I don't care that this is going to taste terrible because I need water, right? And so there's all these other things that matter. Whereas that if, if I had a bottle of water in my hand and you had the choice between the muddy water and the, you know, you would take the, the clean water, but you kind of have to do what you have to do. So it's a, all these things are tricky, right? Um, behavior is sometimes hard. And that's what I think I like about it, but it's also I think a lot of times you see behavior done and it's like, well, I did this behavior and here it is. Right. Um, and you didn't really think about like, what, what is the animal really telling me here? Um, um, you know, and sometimes even in CTA experiments, um, the first time they drink it, they may drink it very similar to water. Right. And then as they have more trials and they sort of figure out, okay, I'm, cause they don't know what they're getting that day. Maybe they, you know, I'm sort of thinking for them here, but, but they don't know. I mean, if they go in and they're like, Oh no, this is the stuff that I don't like. It made me sick, but maybe this is all I'm getting today. I mean, I guess some decision has to be made on some level in the system of whether or not just go ahead and drink it or avoid it. Right. Um, and then maybe as they get alternating or randomly alternating trials of water, they sort of start figuring out, okay, I'm going to get water too. So I don't need to drink, um, these other things. Given the delay and the condition taste aversion, I thought, Maybe I ought to say what CTA stands for. Uh, given the delay in condition taste aversion, it's amazing that it's ever very specific because a lot of things happen in that delay. So I ate the potato salad. I also had a Coke and then uh, I got food poisoning that evening and I blame the potato salad somehow. So I, I, unconsciously, I mean, I develop an aversion to that. Oh. And partially, I think it is also the no the novelty thing, right? So like you've had Coke yes. a thousand times and you've never gotten sick from Coke. So your Coke is a safe bet, right? Potato Absolutely. salad. You think it's, <laughs> there's a lot of logic. And so I had this idea that conditioned taste aversion was so primitive that it didn't involve a ton of logic and the sort of uh, probabilistic thinking about my past experience. But is it like that? Yeah, but that's, so, what, that's so, what Max shows in this kind of this idea of latent, the latent inhibition late, thing, which I found was truly late, fascinating. Latent inhibition is crazy. So if an animal, if you give an, if you give an animal sodium chloride for 10 days in a row, and then on the 11th day, you switch it and give them lithium chloride and they get sick, they're not going to learn a taste aversion, right? Because the, it just, it, for whatever reason, you know, it's, and so people have couched this as that, that, you know, it's not novel. You need to learn it. If it, you only really learn a CTA to something new. Right. And then look at this as a word related to acetylcholine because acetylcholine comes in when it's novel. Um, but it's a crazy, crazy thing. Um, yeah. This and idea. It, and that, it perfectly relates to the, the Coke versus the potato salad. <laughs> yeah. That was a really good analogy. Yeah. 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 That's latent inhibition. Um, yeah. So maybe if you would have had some different drink that you had never had before with the potato salad, you, you may be like, oh, I don't really know which one made me sick. Maybe I should just avoid both. But that, yeah, that's a great latent inhibition analogy. So how that, so maybe that's what, uh, maybe that's what uh, gustatory cortex does. I mean, can you, because you could potentially look at the relative disruption of latent inhibition 
versus just normal CTA uh, with or without <laughs> gustatory cortex, right? So, so that's yeah. So people- that, to me, that sounds a lot more like what cortex does, right? It decides what's new and whatever. It's not just the things that are so, there. It's, right. it's learning about their different. Yeah, and so that has been done. Um, I'm not sure about the Legion study, but but certainly acetylcholine is heavily involved in in the, obviously the novelty of the new stimulus. And if you block acetylcholine in gustatory cortex, you um, can disrupt learn, but but you can also block latent inhibition by adding acetylcholine back in, and then therefore the the, gustor, the circuit sees this once familiar stimulus as novel because now there's this novelty signal tied to it, and then you will learn a CTA, right? Um, so 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 yeah, so that that people the sort of it's weird that the taste system coming from the outside is a little bit weird because you have this group that's sort of small group of people. There's not very many olfactory people, but there's even less taste people. And, and they're really interested in, you know, truly taste, taste coding and taste processing. But then you have this other group of people that use CTA as a mechanism for understanding learning, you know, and all the things that go along with it. And they don't often communicate. Right. Um, and so, so there's a lot, there's like a ton of CTA stuff where you'll just see people who, or doing taste CTA, but they don't care anything about like the, you know, the taste coding aspect of it. It's all just about, you know, the, the circuits underlying that specific kind of learning. And so it's always been weird that there's, you know, there's this sort of disconnect between that we don't talk to each other. Um, and, and I'm sure we should, but we probably all say that and then don't. So I think we lost Charlie, but we can't really turn his camera off for him. But um, so I, you mentioned neophobia a few times. And that seems to be related to expectation, which I wasn't expecting to see in a lot of this stuff on a cellular level, right? Um, not that, you know, uh, anyway, but I, I'm just wondering if there's any parallel to that in olfactory cortex, because there definitely, there, there are sort of anticipatory things happening in somatosensory and visual cortex, but I, I, I just, I, I'm struggling to understand how neophobia works because that seems very top down and i don't really can you just explain you've mentioned it a few times and i'm not sure yeah I so i mean i think inability so to ne- approach right yeah so neophobia can probably mean a lot of things depending on who you are but um so so from the taste from the true taste neophobia the, the idea here is that the so the animal has just gotten water every day right he goes up to the little spout i throw him in there he knows when that shutter opens it's water and then on some day, after a whole bunch of water days, there's something new there, right? And I think the canonical expl- explanation of that is it's sort of all couched under the same thing as CTA, where I don't know if this is going to be safe or not, right? And so um, I'm going to drink a little bit of it, but I'm going to be hesitant. I'm not just going to pound it, even though maybe it tastes good, because I don't know if it's poisonous or not, right? And so that's neophobia, right? I have my consumption is not what it would be. It's reduced. Right. And then the next day I wait and I don't get sick. Right. And so then I realize that, that, okay, well that must be safe. And so I'm going to drink it. And not only is it safe and I'm going to drink it, I like it. So I'm going to drink a lot of it. Right. And then, then you've sort of attenuated this neophobia and that's sort of what we see. Right. And so uh, some people, I think sort of tie them together where it's all kind of one sort of thing where you're, you're, you do, but, but, it's probably true for other things. I mean, neophobia may not be the right word. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, we probably all do this, right? You're, you're, you, you're, you kind of change your behavior when you invite, encounter something novel in your environment. Mice do this, right? If you throw 
something in their cage that they've never had before. They they go through all these behaviors that that are different than their normal beat, right? They they may sort of do some some sniffing where they kind of go out and come back, right? They there's sort of some risk assessment behaviors, maybe they're called. Um, right. So I, th I think it's sort of the same thing as that, where um you you don't really know if this is a safe or not safe thing. And in most it's crazy because the only way you can know if it's safe or not safe taste is to try 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 it, right? So it's different than just looking at it. if I see something on the floor that kind of looks weird, I can be like, well, I don't know, but I I can see it from here. So I'm good. You know, I don't have to go over there and lick it to you know, know if it's safe or not. Which, so I think which kind of goes back to your earlier mention of, you know, we kind of have to force these mice to behave the way, you know, to actually do the experiment. We have to water deprive them, which is rough, right? They're, they're in a state of thirst. So they're, they're forced to go overcome their neophobia <laughs> and, and at least sample the spouts. And I think this, this uh, and as you mentioned that before, I kind of thought, uh, brought up uh, an idea of, of, do you ever plan to do these kind of like mini scope analysis on freely, freely, you know, behaving like over multiple days and like in home cage environments or something that's, that, that they won't have to be thirsty all the time in yeah. order to actually do right. experiments? Right. So you're right. That's a great point. So, so the other way, the other, we have to sort of force them into this paradigm because I want these little discrete events where I know when they're sampling and when they're not. But the other old way of doing it is I just take two bottles, like after I've made them sick, the next day you get a bottle with sodium chloride and you get a bottle with water and it sits in there for a day. And then the, the animal, you know, he's going to take a little bit, you know, he's going to, he, he can sort of do what he wants over time. And that's probably more naturalistic, but rec traditionally recording, even now recording for that long is a lot. Right. And um, I think the new, we're sort of dependent on the people who build these things, the technology to do it. But I know there's the, the newer miniscopes, um, they're, they're talking about doing these like 24 hour a day recordings. Um, um, but I, I can't imagine the processing power. I mean, you have to know, I mean, it just gets out of hand quickly. I mean, you have to know everything the animal is doing and then you have to like, it's a gigabyte a minute recording right now, right? So, I mean, even if you, you know, somehow dealt with that, uh, um, you just, yeah, maybe you, you it's, po I mean, it, it's possible, but it's just so overwhelming to even yeah. think about like, oh my gosh, what if I had 24 hours with a record? I mean, yeah, my computer can't even open up a Excel spreadsheet of the traces for 40 minutes. So, um, you know, it, it just gets crazy big data, but that's cool because there's so much stuff there. So Excuse if we me. go, if we go back to the original idea, like, is this a, a feeding area versus a perceptual area? Even just defining feeding behavior, feeding is so much more than taste, right? Like, cause you mentioned foraging in some of your reviews, right? I mean, what, is there a role for these the swath of cortex that's getting all this input from taste thalamus in foraging behavior that has nothing to do with taste sense. Like, is there some sort of larger distributed set of behaviors around feeding that we can think about in terms of the cortex? I mean, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if we think about it contextually, what the animal is doing, right? I mean, I guess they're just wandering around smelling things. And if it smells safe, you may take a bite out of it and see. Um, so it's it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard because for us, we use it in a very different way than say the animals are saying, same for olfaction, right? Um, they're not using it in the same way we are. So it's sometimes hard to, yeah, I think it's hard to, to really put that together, but you know, like they're, they have to actively lick, right? And so this is sort of an interesting part of that. Like, like 
you you can try not to smell things, but you can try to smell things. But generally, you are smelling things, right? And you are seeing things and hearing things. But but you're not tasting anything unless you taste. You know, you have to physically do that thing. So it's a little bit different, right? I mean, it, it you have to actively sample to 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 get the information, which is I think is a little bit different than um, became very apparent as we do the. We've done similar experiments where you can just blow the animal, blow odor on the animal every you know every day and see how past so-called we would call that I would call that passive experience right you don't really care about it, it's just happening but then I when I was making this up I was like oh I'm going to call this passive experience but then it occurred to me well it's not really passive at all right they're they're choosing when to lick and that's a whole other sort of level of complexity yeah that, that, that goes into these things that makes it hard so where is the field? I mean, you, you mentioned the field is super small right now in, in terms of cortical gustatory cortex. So where is where do you see things going? What are the next round of big questions? Is it this naturalistic behaviors? Um, most places are headed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think that, that you know, like as we get better at being able to do things like record from you know longer times in the freely moving animal, um, you can really ask questions more related to. Know, what the animal, you know, not just these forced things. I mean, I, you know, I think back to like, you know, originally we were doing, even in grad school, you know, I was just taking an anesthetized animal, putting a single unit electrode in, recording from maybe two cells if I was lucky and blowing some motors on and asking what happened, right? To now we've moved to, you know, sampling from lots of cells in an awake animal too, but that animal was head fixed. So then the animal could only do what a few things to now we're moving to, you know, freely moving to ultimately like sort of what Lindsay was talking about to maybe we can just do the whole thing, you know, we can, and then correlate those to, um, to behavior. So, so maybe that's the way to go about it is if I, if I can look at, and what I didn't show today is that we have a little bit of data that maybe, and there's some evidence up there that, that, that a cool idea is to look when the animal gets sick, right? Because the animal's drinking this sodium chloride and he thinks it's actually lithium chloride, but he thinks it's just salty. And then over time, you know, uh, you know, you start getting sick and he starts slowing his sickness down and then they kind of just lay, they, they look really sad. They just like flatten out and lay on the corner, you know, and uh, it's clear that they don't feel well. And then they bounce back and then they're normal again. Right. And so, you know, if you think gustatory cortex is involved in this somehow, maybe you can see correlates of um, the learning happen sort of in real time in the animal, like does the activity in GC sort of correlate with, you know, the sickness of the animal or the behavior in that way. Um, and that's what I really like about the mini scopes is that it's fairly easy to do that, um, um, you know, in, in, a, in a way that I don't think you could do with other approaches. There's obviously uh, drawbacks to using it, but I think all, all approaches have drawbacks. But I, I would hope that's at least I would, I would hope is that we start maybe thinking a little bit bigger. And, um, yeah, in terms of rhythms too, right? Yeah, yeah. Larger. Um, this is always, it's always so much fun talking about taste because it's, so visceral and intuitive for us. But um, any last uh, questions, guys? Because we're running a little low on time. We have 15 minutes left. But um, but thank you for being with us. Otherwise, anyone else? No? I have to think of a better sign off. I'm not good at the sign off part because I just never want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks for joining us. This has been really yeah, thanks. And we're yeah, looking this is really to cool. seeing more. Of from uh, from everyone in the taste field and learning. I mean, Lindsay's been uh, bringing some really cool people around to talk to us about the explosive and, and just incredible things happening in this area in the gut as well as you now the cortex. So um, thanks for doing this, guys. And uh, yeah. we'll see you next week. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. 